Listener Production. While you may not have heard Michael Lucas's voice before, you've almost certainly heard his words. Michael is an award-winning scriptwriter who has been at the helm of some of Australia's most loved TV shows, from Offspring to Wentworth and The Newsreader. He is also co-host of Emsolation, the juggernaut podcast that was born in COVID lockdown, which he helms alongside childhood friend and creative M. Rossiano. In this conversation, Michael and Jamila deep dive into the strategy and skill of a scriptwriter, what draws him to telling certain kinds of stories and how his own life experiences shape the lives of his characters. Oh, and Jamila confronts Michael about why he killed Patrick. If you know, you know. My name is Helen Smith, filling in at the top of this chat for Jamila Ribsby. Up next, I'll bring you the weekend list. Recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here's Jamila's conversation with Michael Lucas. Michael Lucas, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you, Jamila. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is uh, honestly such a pleasure to have you here because I feel like on this program a lot, we talk to actors and actresses who are starring in television shows, but we don't talk enough to the people who are putting the words in their mouths in the first place. (laughs) And finally, I get to see the person who has all the control. Look, it's fair enough. They are generally much prettier, although for the podcast medium, really writers should have an advantage. Um, so we can start with why did you kill Patrick or we could we could kind of go there in a bit of a story arc. But I'm starting there because a lot of the people listening right now will be Offspring fans still yeah. a decade or so on, right? Oh, yeah, do that's you, right. Do you live with that guilt? Uh, well, I'm not I'm not going to say it's guilt at this point. I definitely live with it as a phenomenon in my life. Like, I mean, if I go to a wedding, it, even just generally meeting someone new, it, it feels like eventually it will come round to Patrick. Why did you kill Patrick? Um, do you regret it? What do you feel about it now? Where were you when it happened? Why? You know, those sort of questions. So it's definitely, it's just become part of the tapestry of my life, but I quite enjoy it. I mean, I don't want to sound like a callous person. <laughs> But you've, I mean, I'm, you know, all you want when you write something is for people to care about it. So, you know, they really cared about it. So take me inside a TV writer's room. Who's mm. in there? What does it look like? And how do you make big decisions like that? Well, in that particular instance, uh, Offspring was created by Deborah Oswald. We had a fairly small room on that one. So it was Deborah Oswald leading the charge and then myself and another writer, Jonathan Gavin, were flanking her and the three of us sort of provided the core team. We had producers, Imogen Banks, that came in and we had other writers, other great writers that joined us in the room. But we were like the hub and it really is like... You sit down, you've got a lot of stationery because I'm sure you can relate to this. You feel like if you have a lot of good stationery, then oh, creativity yeah. is going to be supported. So yeah. you'll have whiteboards. You'll be very particular about whether the whiteboard is an efficient one that still has the capacity to hold ink and can be scrubbed off easily. <laughs> you've got post-it notes and you've got snacks and you just sit there and try and put as much story on that whiteboard as you can. And so you tell stories of your life, you crack jokes, you try and make the other people laugh and cry, you get very silly, you have sugar crashes, you sometimes need to go for walks around the block. But it is basically you lock yourself in a room 
and as playfully and energetically as you can, you just try and thrash out a story. There's no particular formula to it. Crushing deadlines are good. (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose in any writer's room you'd have to have a degree of safety, right? You know, the, the no idea is a stupid idea rule has to apply and that's really easy to say. Mm. But if you're in a in a room as a young writer at the start of your career with people you admire or, in your case now, as the one leading the show, the one whose idea this is, and you've got writers on your staff who are going to be trying to impress you, how do you create a space where people feel safe to say something potentially very silly? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. It's terrifying, particularly when you're young and starting out in a room and particularly when you're opposite people whose work you respect. It feels like such a risk to say anything and yet, and the threat of the, the, the terror of saying something that would be poorly received or clunk is horrific because you feel like, well, that in my career. And I do think it probably is on, you know, the senior writers or the lead writer to sort of set the tone. In my case, I mean, I just have to be, if it's a village, I have to be not only the mayor of the village, but the village idiot as well and make sure I say the most stupid, embarrassing, odd things to sort of diffuse the situation and make people feel as though they can be playful. I mean, the tone of a lot of what I write really has a lot of playfulness, even if it isn't a flat out comedy. So it's especially important. But yeah, absolutely. You just want to you want to overshare, you want to say your most embarrassing stories. And then, you know, you want to make sure that you say something crazy and then go, oh my God, that what? no, wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. It really sort of has to come from the top and, and, you know, a room that has an austere or judgmental lead writer is going to be <laughs> an absolute flatline. When did you first have a sense that writing was something you were good at? I was obsessed with film and television, one of those really, really nerdy kids. But in terms of writing, I guess I was in some ways a pretty solitary child. And um, we had to travel a lot, my family, when I was a kid. And my older siblings were a lot older than me. They were at home. So it was me and my mum, basically, on the road a lot. And I had a lot of time with my imagination and a lot of time when my mum had to, like, homeschool me, really, because we were in other countries. And she, sure won't mind me saying this, she was shit at maths, at anything like that, but she was great at reading and writing. And so I sort of overdeveloped in that area and completely underdeveloped in all sorts <laughs> so of areas. So basically you had no choice. Basically, basically, yeah. And and it was really apparent when I sort of came back into the Australian school system that I had no place on a sports field. I had no place looking at a times table, but I, I really could write stories well. I always had an advantage there and I was obsessed with film and television and I tried pretty much every area in film and television you could try from acting to production design to anima- everything. But uh, my writing was stood out. It got more attention and so I pretty quickly just chose to focus on that. The last 10 years or so, I think we've started to talk about this golden age of television, right, as mm. the kind of the best actors, the best writers, the best people at telling stories and making stories have shifted a little bit out of movies and towards the small screen. And we're also getting a lot more television because of streaming services and the like. Yeah. What's driving that, do you think? Are we getting better at telling stories? Are we telling better stories on the small screen than the big screen? I mean, I think we are. I I went through film school in like the mid-aughts And back then, 
Like, everyone just wanted to be, like, Jane Campion or Quentin Tarantino. Those were the two people that you wanted <laughs> to be, like, film auteurs, film directors. But now when I go back to film schools, everyone wants to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Vince Gilligan, who did Breaking Bad. Like, it's it's yeah. the, the notion of television, the showrunner, is now kind of like the rock star position in film and television. I think a lot of it is... At a certain point, you know, once we had all these streaming services and everything and a huge influx of money, people were able to take risks, do more distinctive things and actually had the financial ability to do so. Like the production values of television, when you <laughs> watch an episode of Succession or something, it looks as brilliant and sounds as brilliant and is yeah. as amazingly well acted as any film you saw in the 90s. And I think that started to draw all the best writers and directors and actors and of course, on television, you know, over the course of eight hours or however long you've got, you can tell a big, sprawling, novelistic story. And so all of a sudden it feels like film where you have to set everything up and then wrap everything up in two hours feels limited and, and like there's only so far you can go. I mean, I still love cinema, but um, yeah, I mean, there's no question for me the things that have me obsessively talking are those television shows as they roll out, be it The Last of Us or White Lotus or or any of them. I think it's the level of talent that it's now drawn and just what you can do within that time frame and with those resources. What do you think it takes for an Australian television show to give itself a global audience? And I suppose that the counter question to that is, what does it take for an Australian television show to capture an Australian audience when literally the whole world of TV is now something we can access? Yeah, yeah well, look, I wish I knew the complete <laughs> If I knew, I'd that. be even more successful if that was possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sometimes surprises me in some ways. Uh, you know, as someone who makes TV in Australia, we now rely on international sales. You can't now just make a television show of a high production standard just using Australian money. You need international investments. And so you see how many territories your show sells to. There's big chasms. Like some shows you'll be really thrilled because it's cracked 20 territories. And then other shows, like Newsreader is closing in on 100. I certainly know that, you know, you just have to get the best production value, the best writing, the best acting that you possibly can. But, I mean... The weird thing for me in that situation was when we were trying to finance it in the first place, a lot of people were saying, oh, a newsroom show, if we wanted this, why would we want one set in Australia with Australian stories? Lindy Chamberlain yeah. and we'd want an American version of this. And weirdly, it, that doesn't seem to have been an impediment to it overseas. And I don't, I don't fully know why. But I feel like now when you look at things like Heartbreak High that really travel, mm. it is that there is an unabashed... Australian voice. And actually, I think people really do respond to that. They definitely respond to it in Australia, but actually they really respond to it overseas as well. And, and it's great to be in this era where now international audiences, and really I mean American audiences, are starting to become a bit more accustomed to hearing different accents and seeing television from dis different parts of the world. And all signs are that if you can execute it to a really high level and tell a cracking story in an Australian voice, they they really will respond. I mean, I think that's that's as much as as much as I know, but I mean, stay tuned for the next thing I make to not have any international sales whatsoever because there's no formula really. <laughs> Let's talk about the newsreader because it has been hugely critically acclaimed. Um, it won a whole bunch of actors. 
It also won the Silver Logie for Most Outstanding Drama Program, none of which shocked me watching it (laughs) because I was so deeply captivated by it. And one of the first questions I had when I heard about the series was, why did you decide on the time period? And by the end of watching, I felt like I had a very clear idea. But I want to know from you, why that point in Australian history? Because when you're you're setting a a story in a newsroom, what's happening in the news is highly relevant. Pretty critical, yeah. Yeah, well, for me, 1986 is sort of the first era that I can remember the news. I was seven. And the episode one big news story is the Challenger explosion. And that really is the first news story that I have a really vivid memory of it. Those plumes of smoke and my mother Mm. explaining to me what had happened really landed on me and sort of started that obsession with news. So I always knew I wanted it to be set in the past, um, but I didn't want to go so far back to an era that I had no memory of whatsoever. I thought that would be too big a challenge, frankly. Whereas 1986, I can... I can really summon images of it and I can summon the texture of it and I know what I'm writing. And 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 that particular year, starting with Challenger, it was an absolute cracker year. There were just so many events in this really short, condensed three-month time period. You had Chernobyl, you had the Russell Street bombing, you had Lindy Chamberlain getting out of jail and the Challenger. It was, it was really stacked. I mean, we think these days that we're in this incredibly high news cycle that, you know, mm. massive events kept happening. And it's absolutely true, but it, it did then in the 80s as well, in the mid-80s. And also the other benefit for me is, thankfully, it's it's continuing on to future seasons. And and for me, you know, the further it goes, the more vivid my memories are of that era. Mm. So as we start to trip into 87, 88, it goes from being fragmented childhood memories to more detailed sense of, oh, yeah, I, to- I remember what the bicentennial looked like and things like that. So it's uh, the time period for me is a bit of a gift that keeps giving. Were you always a news nerd? Were you a kid who watched the news? I, I was and my family was. Yeah, it's, it is quite nerdy. Um, but it was a real tradition in our house, the 7pm news bulletin, ABC, but oftentimes he would start at 6pm. My father was an um, infectious diseases specialist and his, and his specialty was AIDS. And so my childhood was really dominated by that epidemic. And he was, I'm not going to say he was like one of the chief medical officers in the pandemic, but regularly, you know how in the pandemic, they would often bring out scientists onto the television to talk about what COVID was. Well, the same thing happened in the AIDS epidemic. And my father from, you know, my early childhood was regularly going on 10 eyewitness news to just talk about AIDS. And I have such vivid memories. News that had a bigger budget then they sent, like, the Eyewitness News helicopter to our local Oval to pick him up. And, like, as a kid, if you watch your dad go into a helicopter, be taken to the news studio, and then you run to the TV, and then you see your father live on television, it really imprints upon you. And I think that's where it came from. And I think, you know, a big part of his job was getting out the right message about AIDS and HIV. And so he was monitoring the news day by day by day obsessively. And I think that's where it began for me. Do you think that proximity to a global crisis, seeing this one issue discussed and played out in your household again and again, meant that you 
sort of inflated its significance compared to other events. I don't, that sounds like I'm I'm suggesting that the AIDS epidemic wasn't significant. <laughs> it was hugely significant. But does it mean that other major events that were happening at the time sort of took a back seat to an extent? Oh, yeah, definitely. For us in our house, it was the dominant topic from really, you know, as soon as the earliest time I can remember up until the late 90s, Mm. Uh, because my mother actually worked in the AIDS hospital as well. Yeah. Okay. So you've got like wipeout at the dinner table. Yeah. And so in the midst of that, I just remember that story being absolutely constant, but then it was those huge news events that would break through as well, like your Chernobyl's or your Exxon Valdez oil spills or your Berlin Wall falling. I do remember the really, really big ones. But in terms of the other social issues at the time, yeah, it's strange. Like I don't have vivid memories of um, even massive things like uh, at the moment I'm researching apartheid in South Africa and, of yeah. course, that just got so much news coverage and it's so incredible to read at the moment and think, oh, my God, they, what, we, they were having elections and... and <laughs> And they weren't allowing any black people in South Africa to vote. It's so extreme. And I don't remember that to my shame. But I can remember every flare-up of attention and panic about the AIDS crisis, definitely, which is odd for someone who was seven, eight, nine at the time. You're a gay man. How was that? shaping you at the same time because I imagine you're you're this kid growing up and you were saying that it starts to hit your consciousness around age seven and then it's going through to well if you're talking about the 90s like you're going Mm. through a fair period of time there what 10 years or so where this is shaping your outlook on the world how Mm. do you think that impacted you I mean I learned what gay was because of AIDS my parents had to sort of explain it to me so there was never a there was never a definition of gay that didn't involve, you know, AIDS and, and death. I, and, um, I mean, in some ways, I, I was certainly lucky in that I, I was, there was a lot of prejudice around at the time. And I think my parents did their best to sort of keep that outside the house. But even, even the way that people spoke about it, uh, friends of the family would come round and they would, they would say things like, your father is so wonderful because he just treats them like they're any other patient. And wow. if you unpack it, like that really lands on you. And, and I mean, even there was the, one of the most vivid memories was th- there was this time when my mother came home with a carload full of like, she had a microwave and a blender and all this stuff. It was like Christmas. And I was so excited because a microwave in the eighties was just like such a status. And I think she, I think that was her first VCR and that was just, it was so exciting. But then she explained it's because one of the patients was about to die and he had no family that accepted him. So he had no one to give this to, but the hospital staff. And I don't remember that being intensely traumatic at the time, but of course, you know, it just sort of leaves you with your message that that can't be me. It just can't be me. Mm. And so any sort of notion, (laughs) any queer feelings that you might have or any sense of that, you know, I just needed to push it down as much as possible. And I did. And, and, and as I said, it wasn't, it wasn't because there was a lot of prejudice from my family or anything. It was just the bare facts that I associated it with, with death and, um, and fear. And yeah, I just had to keep telling myself that I, that couldn't be me. That was the legacy of it, really. 
do you think we're getting better at telling queer stories? I, I, I kind of think back on like my own sort of teenage years and whether it was in, in books or films or television, I feel like there were some really clear archetypes right? Like there was the, you sort of had the gay sidekick, best friend, the yeah. happy-go-lucky, here for the comedy kind of role. Yeah. And then you had you had sort of tragic stories or tragic side stories. Yeah. Philadelphia. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> do, you think, do you think that's starting to shift now? And where do you think queer stories are being told well? I think, I mean, they're being told well when they're being told by queer people is the long and short of it. I think for the longest time, they were sort of queer stories that were interpreted often by straight people and sometimes really well and sometimes things that, you know, seem... I mean, these days I remember seeing queer characters on screen kind of in four weddings and a funeral for the first time. Yes, yes. And, and, and you know, it, actually for me that was pretty good. I mean, these days you look back on it and go, okay, you never saw them kiss, you never saw any affection. It was so clearly yeah, written by true. a straight man. Having said that, though, it's still established they were a completely loved member of this friendship group. And, you know, when that character died, it was presented as an absolute tragedy. And they even said that this was the truest love in the story. And all of those aspects to it were important to me. So even the imperfect early examples meant something. But I feel like now, you know, now we have queer, openly queer storytellers, openly queer actors, and it just leads to more authenticity and a greater plethora of characters. Then, I mean, look, I love a queer comic sidekick. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. But it's great to see protagonists too. You know, I, I certainly have told a lot of stories about gay trauma, but we're also starting to get, you know, unabashed gay rom-coms. And, I mean, basically you just want to hit a point where... You see the complete full spectrum of humanity in queer characters and I feel like, you know, in this country and in a lot of places we are thankfully treading a lot closer to that. All right, well, I think we are all hanging out for that. But in the meantime, we will stay tuned for the next season of The Newsreader. Michael, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you. And I, I didn't even mention why I killed Patrick. It wasn't just me, by the way. But did you want to hear? Tell me, tell me. No, 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 yeah, tell me. We, it was a group gonna, decision. Deborah uh-huh. Oswald, absolutely. Who I'm voted say, what? Oh, it was unanimous. I'm sorry oh, to wow. say. Why? No. So why did you have to kill him? Because like for the story? Yes, yes. And and I remember the moment when it fell into place because ultimately as much as it was all about romance, it was more that show about the sisters' relationship and being tested yeah. and, 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 you know, signs of great love between them. And I still remember... Uh, you might, I'm sure you do recall that Asha Keddie's Nina was pregnant at the time. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. I, I do indeed. <laughs> Just about to give birth. And I remember when we were thinking of the shape of it in terms of the sisters, not the love story. And, and Deborah Oswald thought of a moment when post Patrick's death, Nina just couldn't go on and turned to her sister and said, I'm not even sure that I'm going to be able to love the baby. And then Billy, her sister played by Cat Stewart, was going to say, if you can't, I'll love the baby until you're ready to. And that made us all cry. And we knew in that moment that that was the bigger, better story that we had to tell. As much as we love Patrick and Matthew Linovez, we, in terms of what we wanted to say about people and humanity and those yeah. women, that that trumped everything. So He had to go away. He did. He did. Yeah. I mean, he... Also, I think he would have been a bad husband. I think so. He was a and great love interest. I feel like we tracked, my thinking of it was 
that like the Don Honey character was sort of the love that's not even really, it's just a projection. It's not even really based on a real thing. It never quite happens. Then you move into the phase of your life where you go for someone you have really like strong attraction to. And that was the Dr. Patrick, but it's not, it's narky and it's, there's all this tension. And then ultimately you hit a point of maturity where you realize maybe I should, it's also would help if in addition to being attracted to them, I'm friends with them. And, <laughs> and I feel like that's what Nina's later love interest starting with Patrick Balmore about. So that's my theory of it. He did need to die. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I don't apologise. <laughs> I stand by our decision. I do, to the end. <laughs> Thank you for your clarification and your statement at this time. <laughs> Thank you. I rest my case. <laughs> that's it for Jamila's conversation with Michael Lucas and season four of Five Bedrooms. One of Michael's amazing shows starts on Paramount Plus on the 14th of May. Make sure you catch it there. It's time for the weekend list. And while Jamila is away sick, she has given me a cheeky wreck for us all. Jamila's first wreck is Strepsils, Codrill and bed rest, which is no surprise. But earlier this week, before Jamila succumbed to the plague, she watched Jury Duty with her husband and... She explains it. it's kind of like The Office meets The Truman Show, where the lead character thinks he's genuinely selected for jury duty. And so literally everyone else is an actor but this guy, and it's so funny. I've actually watched this one too, and if you need a laugh, this is the show for you. Cannot recommend enough. Jury duty on Amazon. Ready, guys? Here we go. All right, so this is what happened. Allegedly. We got defecation. There's a lady named Jacquees. I'm in it. I'm in it. Try to keep an eye on I want to do the best job that I can. Would you be able to be a good juror for this matter? Sir. I'm, I'm a racist. Sir, please have a seat. I don't know why I said that. Yeah. Eliminate that yeah. for the next time. Totally, yeah. That's a stupid idea. My first rec this week is an episode of the Imperfects podcast hosted by Ryan, Shelton and brothers Hugh and Josh. So this episode is with Chrissy Swan. Chrissy's episode is one of my favourites they have ever done. She was so open and honest about how she makes some really tricky choices about saying no to things and how walking, yes, like power walking, has changed her life. I cannot recommend this one enough. It is a great listen. I hated exercise Mm. because it was a punishment. It was what I had to do to fix myself. Mm. And when I flipped that narrative and started to move for my mind, I realised that I had been tricked, I guess, and that it wasn't what I'd been told. My second recommendation is about Mother's Day. Mother's Day is coming up. It's on the 14th of May. So I've got some ideas that we can prep in advance so we're not scrounging around. The first one is instead of buying your mum flowers, maybe buy your mum a plant from Bunnings. Her favourite plant or cactus or succulent and dress it up in a little pot and that is beautiful, amazing, ready to go and very sustainable as well. My second one would be a voucher for her favourite restaurant or hairdresser or an experience that will just pamper your mum and make her feel so loved, which we all need to do. My last one is probably the best of all. Try and plan a day with your mum or your parent or loved one. Spending time with each other and spending time with them sometimes is the best gift of all. 
That's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. If you want more of the weekend briefing, you can download the Listener app from the App Store and follow us there. Or you can find us on any podcast platform that you get your podcasts from. Make sure you follow and subscribe to keep updated with all the latest episodes. And while you're there, why not give us a cheeky five-star review? You can do this for every episode, by the way. You don't have to just do it once. You can review all of the episodes. Let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. That's it. The briefing team will be back in your earbuds bright and early on Monday morning. Listener.